Sometimes when I go into a store and want to make a purchase or into the bank and want to cash a check, uh, people will request some form of identification. And I usually open up my wallet and, and show them my picture on my Florida driver's license. And on the side of that license, it tells what color my eyes are, what color my hair is, and all that sort of thing, how old I am. In other words, what is being done here in trying to identify me as a person is that a list of particular characteristics or traits are listed there. And we call these characteristics or traits or idiosyncrasies that define a human being their attributes. Now, when we study the doctrine of God, one of the most important things we're concerned with is an understanding of his attributes. And so we seek to look at the specific characteristics of God, such as his holiness, his immutability, his infinity, and so on. All these different things that we say about God in order to gain a coherent understanding of who he is. Now, at the beginning of such a, uh, an endeavor, we recognize a couple of important things. One distinction that is made in theology with respect to the nature of God is the distinction between the communicable and the incommunicable attributes of God. On Atlanta, Georgia, we have a communicable disease center where the focus of attention there is to study those diseases that are easily transmitted from one person to another that we might say are contagious. And when we talk about that which is communicable, we mean that which is able to be transferred from one to another. Now, in our next session, we will look at some of the communicable attributes of God. That refers to those attributes that God possesses that we, to some degree, can possess as well. But... Today, we're going to look at the incommunicable attributes in brief. And this term, incommunicable attributes, defines those attributes of God that cannot be transferred to a creature. I mean, even God cannot communicate these characteristics of his own being to those things that he Made In simple terms, we ask the question frequently, is it possible for God to create another God? Well, of course not, unless we change the definition of the term God, because the problem God would have in creating another God is that the creaturely God, by definition, would be created, would be a creature, and not uh, independent, not eternal, not immutable. He would lack the necessary attributes that describe God. So there are certain attributes that even God couldn't 
transfer from himself to a creature. Now, a second uh, introductory idea that we have to have besides this distinction between the incommunicable and communicable attributes of God is the important principle of understanding that God is a simple being, not simple to understand, not simple in the sense of being simplistic or easy. But what is meant by that is that God is not made up of parts. I have distinctive body parts, toes and feet and legs and the knee bone connected to the ankle bone and all of that. And we can talk about my liver and my pancreas and, and kidneys and heart and lungs and so on. And I'm made up of so many parts of bone and so much flesh. All of this put together makes me a single creature made up of distinctive parts. But God is a simple being in the sense that he is not a complex being made up of five pounds of immutability, five pounds of eternality, five pounds of infinity, five pounds of sovereignty, and so on. He's not a little bit of this and a little bit of that all mixed together or built together like we would construct a house. But rather, we say in theology, it's not so much that God has attributes as that he is his attributes. And that he has his attributes or he is his attributes in an undivided, simple way. Now, again, what are the practical ramifications of that? Well, we might say that, for example, that God is holy. And we might also say that God is just. And we might also say that he is immutable. And we might also say that he is omnipotent. But here's what that means. That his omnipotence is always a holy omnipotence, an immutable omnipotence, an eternal omnipotence, and an infinite omnipotence. That is, all of the other character traits that we use to describe God also would define what we mean by his omnipotence. And by the same token, God's eternality is an omnipotent eternality. And his holiness is an all-powerful, omnipotent holiness. Do you see what I mean? That it's not like he's made up of one square of omnipotence, another square of holiness. He is altogether holy, altogether omnipotent, altogether immutable. He is his attributes. Yet, nevertheless, we make this distinction between the incommunicable and the communicable attributes. Now, some people don't even think that this is a very helpful distinction and tend to shy away from it. But I think it's very important because one of the most critical things we can do as Christians is to come to a clear understanding about the difference between God and any creature. And no creature 
can ever possess an incommunicable attribute of Almighty God. I was talking about some problems that some folks were having in relationships the other day. And the gentleman I was talking with looked at me and he says, well, you know what we have here? And I said, what's that? He says, well, we got a bean problem. Well, I knew what he meant. He was speaking uh, in a colloquial manner. When he said, we have a bean problem, most people would think, you know, green beans, lima beans, whatever. But he was simply saying, what? We have a human being problem. <laughs> he said, well, this is a problem with, this is problems that human beings have with each other because we're a fallen race of people. And that's what he meant by a being problem. He was uh, making a play on the word human being. Now, when we talk about the difference between God and creatures, the most common distinction we make is that we are human beings, and God is called the supreme being. This is our common way of speaking. God is the supreme being. We are human beings. Now, what we're getting at here is the idea that there must be something I have in common with everything else that exists. Uh, I, I am. Roger is. This piece of chalk is. God is. So that we all are, to some extent, beings. And yet, uh, there's something special about God with respect to His being. Now, when we think of this and we look at, the, the, we see a common idea here of being and the difference in the qualifying adjectives that describe the being, you would think that the real difference between God and man would be out here. But in reality, the real difference between God and everything that is made is this right here, as I was indicating earlier. We stand out of being. We're derived beings. We are conditional beings. We are dependent beings. We are created beings. But God is not dependent, not created, not uh, finite, but uh, He has the power of being in and of Himself. He doesn't derive it from something else. I mean, we say, in God, we live and move and have our being. God doesn't say, in man, I live and move and have my being. He got along without us before he met us. He can get along without us now. He never needed us to survive or to be, and yet we cannot survive for an instant without the power of his being upholding our being. Because the idea here is that when God creates us, not only does He create us, and by virtue of His being the maker of who we are, means that we are dependent upon Him for our very existence from the beginning, but the idea biblically is that what God creates, He sustains, He preserves. And I am as dependent upon God for my moment-to-moment -moment being 
for my continuing to exist as I was for my original existence. And again, this is the supreme difference between God and us in that God has no such dependence upon anything outside of himself. Now, I've mentioned already Bertram Retzel's uh, uh, insight that he had when he was in his late teenage years when uh, he read an essay from John Stuart Mill in which Mill argued against the classical cosmological argument for the existence of God in which the uh, thinkers reasoned this way, every uh, effect must have a cause and we would reason back from uh, effects that we see now back to the ultimate cause who was God. And uh, Bertram Russell said when he was growing up he was very much persuaded by that rational argument until he read this essay by Mill in which Mill said, well, if everything has to have a cause, then obviously God has to have a cause. And so when we get back to God, you can't stop there. You've got to keep asking the question, who caused God? And this was an epiphany for Bertrand Russell. He uses it in his book, Why I'm Not a Christian. And for the rest of his life, he... Uh, rejected the existence of God on the basis of this uh, insight from John Stuart Mill, which involved a false understanding of the law of causality. The law of cause and effect says that every effect must have a cause, not that every thing that is must have a cause. The only thing that requires a cause is an effect, and it requires one by definition, because that's what an effect is, something that is caused by something else. And and so the question is, does God require a cause? Not if he has his being in and of himself. Not if he is eternal and self-existent. Now again, there were two, uh, two little boys having a discussion, and one dis- little boy said to the other little boy, uh, where'd that tree come from? And the other boy said, God made that tree. Oh. Well, where did that lake come from? God made the lake. Where did those flowers come from? God made those flowers. Well, where did you come from? God made me. All right. Where did God come from? And the little boy said, God made himself. And that's supposed to be profound, but it's profoundly wrong because even God cannot make himself. For God to make himself... God would have to be before he was, and he can't do that. So it's not that God is self-created. That's what we don't want to say about God. Nothing can create itself. God is not self-created. God is self-existent. Now, this gets us, I think, to the most amazing and profound element or aspect or attribute of God himself. My favorite attribute in God, if I can have one, is found in the word aseity. I mean, I realize that the vast majority of people who have not studied theology at a technical level have probably never in their lives heard that word before, a seity. 
And this is where I think, uh, you know, I just feel so fortunate to have had the opportunity to spend so many years studying theology and, uh, and see the benefits therein. But when I see that word, I have chills go up and down my spine. I mean, just seeing that word communicates to me something about the character of God that wants me to fall on my, makes me want to fall on my face right now in a posture of awe and reverence and adoration. Because the aseity of God refers to having his existence in and of himself. This is what defines the supremacy of the supreme being. That God is not a creature. That God, and, and this is unimaginable. It's unimaginable. If you choke off my oxygen supply for a few minutes, I die. If you take away water for a few days, I die. You take away food for a few more days, I die. Or give me a disease that can kill me quickly. Our lives are fragile and susceptible to all kinds of dreadful things that can destroy you. God can't die. There's nothing that he's dependent upon for his being. This is what I meant earlier when I said he has the very power of being in and of himself, the very thing we don't have. That's why we're so fragile. That's why we're so frightened because as human beings, we are creaturely beings, we're dependent beings, and we wish we had the power to keep ourselves alive forever, but we don't. But God has that power of his own being and the power of any other being in and of himself. That's what Paul says, in him we live and move and have our being. And God and God alone has a seity. God and God alone has self-existence, the power to be eternally on his self. So let me just say very quickly, I think that reason alone compellingly demands that there be such a being who possesses this, or nothing could possibly exist in this world. If anything exists now, that tells us that there never could have been a time when nothing existed. Because if there ever was a time when there was absolutely nothing, then what could be now? Nothing. So let's not talk about a universe that came into being 17 billion years ago, unless you're going to talk in terms of the nonsense of self-creation. Because nothing can create itself. And if there ever was a time that there was nothing, if it were 17 billion years and six months ago, there was nothing, what would there be now? Nothing. What could there possibly be now? Nothing. The point is, there is something. And if anything exists now at all, this piece of chalk, my shoe, this room in which we are, then that means that somewhere, somehow, something must have the power of being independently. There always had to be. where nothing could possibly be. That's what I'm saying. This piece of chalk, 
screams of the aseity of God. And you won't find that aseity in the chalk. And you won't find it in me. These are things that are not communicable. Just like God cannot communicate his eternality to a creature because anything that has a beginning in time is by definition not eternal. We can be given eternal life going on forever in that direction, but we can't get it retroactively because we all have birth dates and we are not eternal creatures. Eternality as such is an incommunicable attribute. Immutability goes with aseity. Because God is eternally what he is and who he is, this is the basis of his being incapable of mutation. We as creatures who are made in space and time are mutable creatures. We are not immutable creatures. And we are finite creatures. We are not infinite creatures. God could not create another infinite being because there, there may be many infinite lines and so on. There can be only one infinite being. It's a, it's a contradiction in terms to talk in terms of two infinite beings if we're talking about being, being infinite. And so we see how these attributes of God point to the way in which God is other from us, the way in which he is different from us, and the way in which he transcends us, and the way in which he is greater than we, and why we owe him glory and honor and praise for his greatness. You know, we cheer the Michael Jordans of this world. We stand up and and give all kinds of accolades to people who excel for a moment and then are heard no more. And yet the one who has the very power of being in and of himself and eternally, to whom every one of us is absolutely dependent and should owe our everlasting gratitude for every breath of air that we take in this world, doesn't receive the honor and glory from his creatures that he so richly deserves. The one who is supreme deserves the obedience and the worship of those whom he has made. In our last session, we looked at the distinction between the incommunicable attributes of God and the communicable attributes of God. And we recall from that occasion that the incommunicable attributes of God refer to those aspects of God's being and nature which are not shared by the creature things like infinity and eternality and omnipresence and omniscience and uh, attributes of that sort. 
Today, I'd like to begin by looking at a comment that the Apostle Paul makes in his letter to the Ephesians in the fifth chapter of that epistle, beginning at verse 1, where we read, Therefore, be imitators of God as dear children, and walk in love as Christ also has loved us and given himself for us, an offering and a sacrifice to God for a sweet-smelling aroma. Now, in this text, Paul calls the believer to imitate God. Now, the only way we can imitate God is if there are certain things about God that we share in by nature and have the ability to mirror and to reflect. So this text presumes that there are certain attributes that God possesses that are communicable. That is, that we also have the ability to possess and to manifest. Now, there is one attribute about which Uh, there's some discussion and debate as to its communicability, and that is the attribute of holiness. Because the Scriptures say that God is holy. And when we probe the meaning of the holiness of God, we see that that term holy, as it describes uh, Uh, God refers both to his nature and to his character, and that there are at least two distinct meanings of the term holy in the Bible. And the very primary meaning, the one that is uh, first in terms of significance and first in terms of usage, is... uh, is not the one we usually think of when we think of the word holy. In the first instance, that God is holy refers to his greatness, to his transcendence, to that sense in which he is above and beyond anything in the universe. And in that regard, the holiness of God would be regarded as being incommunicable because He alone in his being transcends all created things. And in that sense, we can never be holy. But there is another reference that the Bible has towards holiness, and that is the use of the term that refers to God's purity, that it says something of his character, his character of moral perfection, of absolute moral and ethical excellence. And if with respect to this concept of holiness, God does make the demands upon his creatures and particularly upon us where he says, be ye holy even as I am holy. And of course, when we are engrafted into Christ, and renewed inwardly by the Holy Spirit. And it's fascinating at this point that the Holy Spirit 
is called the Holy Spirit and alone among the members of the Godhead has that particular title uh, in our customary usage. But biblically, obvious, obviously, it's not just the Spirit who is holy, but the Father is also holy uh, as he, His name is holy, and certainly the Eternal Son is likewise holy. But one of the reasons for the emphasis on the term holy with regard to the third person of the Trinity is because it is his uh, task primarily in the Trinitarian work of redemption to apply the work of Christ to us, and he is the one who regenerates us, and he is the one who works for our sanctification. And in this work of the Holy Spirit, uh, he is working in us and through us to bring us into the conformity to the image of Christ, to have us fulfill this mandate that God has imposed upon us when he says, Be ye holy, even as I am holy. So even though in our fallen state we are anything but holy in its meaning of pure, nevertheless, through the ministry of the Holy Spirit, in our redemption, we are in the process of being made holy, and we look toward our glorification when we will be completely sanctified and purified of all sin, and in that sense, we'll be imitators of God. Now, some people believe that uh, redemption includes, in the final analysis, the deification of uh, the uh, human believers. But uh, I believe that that is a departure from biblical Christianity, that even in our glorified state, we will still be creatures and we will not be divine beings. We will not become deified in heaven, but we will be glorified by virtue of our purification. Now, the text that Paul uses here in his letter to the Ephesians, uh, when he speaks of our responsibility to be imitators of God, he mentions a particular quality right up front where we are called to be people who manifest love. And the Scriptures tell us that God is love, and the love of God is something that is so descriptive of his character and is one of his moral attributes that we also are called to imitate. So this is a quality that does not belong to God alone, but is communicated to his creatures. Beloved, God is love, and love is of God, and all who love in the sense of this agape of which the Scriptures speak uh, are born of God. And so his love is another uh, attribute that can be imitated, and we are called to imitate as his children. Also, when we speak of the goodness of God, uh, this is another attribute, another one of the moral attributes that we are called to emulate. Though the Scripture gives a very 
grim description of uh, our ability to emulate this aspect of God in our fallen state. We remember uh, the encounter that Jesus had with the rich young ruler who came up to him with these uh, uh, congratulatory words, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus responded by saying, why do you call me good? Only God is good. And then elsewhere, the apostle, quoting the psalmist, said, There is none righteous, no, not one. There is none who does good. So that in our fallen condition, we do not imitate or mirror and reflect this aspect of God's character, namely of goodness. Yet, once we are regenerated by the Holy Spirit, we are called to a life of good works so that with the help of the Holy Spirit, we can approach uh, the uh, character and quality of goodness and mirror and reflect this aspect of God's nature. Well, again, there are other uh, aspects uh, and attributes of God that are communicable that we are to be concerned with. One, for example, is the justice of God. Uh, that God is just means that he acts always according to righteousness. In biblical categories, when justice is spoken of, it's never spoken of as some abstract concept or abstract rule or some law that exists above and beyond God to which God himself is, uh, uh, is bound to conform. But rather, in the scriptures, the concept of justice is linked constantly with the idea of righteousness. And justice is based upon the internal character of God. In theology, we make a distinction, and I won't use the technical Latin for a change here, I'm tempted to, between the internal righteousness of God and the external righteousness of God, which is sometimes called the internal justice of God, as distinguished from the external justice of God. And what that distinction about is about is this, that... When God acts outwardly, what he does is always right. He always does the right thing. And in that regard, he always does that which is in conformity to justness. Now, that gets a little bit complicated for this reason that also in the Bible uh, there is this concept of justice and justice is often distinguished from mercy or grace. And uh, as I tell my students in the seminary, whatever you do when you pray, don't ever ask God for justice because if you do, you might get it. And if we were to be treated by God according to his justice, we would all 
perish. That's why when we stand before God, we plead that He would treat us according to His mercy or according to His grace, which is distinguished from justice. And justice, uh, again, uh, defines His righteousness whereby He never punishes people more severely than the crimes that they have committed, nor does he ever fail to reward those who uh, are due a particular reward, uh, we, but rather he always operates justly, and never does God do anything that is unjust. Now, I put this picture on the board here because we have a circle around the word justice, and because uh, everything outside of the circle of justice could be called non-justice. Those are the two universal categories. There's justice and everything outside of that category, which we would call non-justice. But I'm going to uh, make a second circle here and sort of dice it in half to uh, explain something here that should be important in the lectures that we uh, will use soon. Outside the circle of justice is the circle of non-justice, and everything in this outer circle is non-justice, but there are different kinds of non-justice. If we speak of the mercy of God... The mercy of God is outside the circle of justice and is a kind of non-justice. But I'm also going to point in this circle the word injustice. Injustice is evil. In, an act of injustice violates the canons and principles of righteousness. If God, for example, were to do something that was not fair, then he would be acting unjustly. And Abraham knows the impossibility of that when he mentioned to God, will not the judge of all of the earth do what is right? Because God is a just judge, that means that all of his judgments are according to righteousness so that he never acts in an unjust way or he never commits an injustice. Now, where people get confused is with respect to the quality of mercy or of grace, because grace is not justice. But, and we see that, grace and mercy are outside the category of justice, but they are not inside the category of injustice. There's nothing wrong with God's being merciful. There's nothing evil with His being gracious. In fact, in one sense, we would have to extend this, even though justice and mercy are not the same thing. Justice is linked to righteousness, and righteousness may at times include within it the idea of mercy and grace. The reason why we need to distinguish them is that because justice is something that is obligatory to righteousness, but mercy and grace are always actions that God takes freely. God is never required to be merciful. 
He's never required to be gracious. And at the minute we think that God owes us grace or owes us mercy, we're no longer thinking about grace or mercy. Now our minds have tripped over that concept and we've confused mercy and grace with justice. Justice may be owed, but mercy and grace are always voluntary with God. Now, we keep this in mind because of the distinction between mercy and injustice, because when we come to the doctrine of election, for example, where God gives mercy not to everybody, or he gives his grace selectively, not everybody receives the fullness of God's saving grace. But when we hear that, we think, well, that's not fair because some people receive grace and others don't. There's something wrong with that. Well, no, because some people receive justice at the hands of God. Other people receive grace at his hands. And we'll explore that more fully in our uh, next lecture. But for now, I want us to understand that the justice of God is related to his internal righteousness. I said a few moments ago that uh, we speak of his external justice and his internal justice, his external righteousness and his internal righteousness. Now, what that means is this, that God always does what is right. His actions, his external behavior always corresponds to his internal character. Remember Jesus put it simply when he uh, talked to his uh, disciples and said that a corrupt tree cannot produce good fruit, but corrupt fruit comes from a corrupt tree, and likewise good fruit comes from a good tree. Well, there is no corruption in the internal being of God God always acts according to his character, and his character is righteous altogether. Therefore, everything that he does is righteous. That's why we make that distinction between the internal righteousness and the external righteousness, between his character, who he is, and what he does. And it's, it's the same for us. We aren't sinners because we sin. We sin because we're sinners. There's something flawed about our inner character. Now, when God the Holy Spirit changes us inwardly, then that should manifest itself in an outward change of behavior. So that now, outwardly, we are called, again, to conform to the righteousness of God so that we are made as creatures in the image of God with the capacity for righteousness. We are made with the capacity to do what is right and to act in a just fashion. You remember the Old Testament summary of the law of God that Micah provides. What does the Lord require of thee but to do justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God, so that his justice and righteousness are communicable attributes that we are called to emulate. Now, in the time that is left, I want to make reference 
to one more uh, communicable attribute of God, and that is his wisdom. That God is seen not only as being wise, but as being all wise. Now, and we are told to act according to wisdom. In fact, the whole body of literature in the Old Testament uh, that is separated from the prophets and the writings is often called the wisdom literature, or the separated, I should say, distinguished from the uh, historical books and the prophetic books. It's called the wisdom literature, books like Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Psalms, Song of Solomon, Job, and so on. And if you look at the book of Proverbs, we are told that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And for the Jew, the very essence of wisdom, biblically, is found in godly living. It's not just in clever uh, knowledge. In fact, the Old Testament makes a distinction between knowledge and wisdom. And we are told to get knowledge, and that's important. But above all, what? Get wisdom. The purpose of learning, the purpose of gaining knowledge, is that we may become wise. Wise in the sense of knowing how to live in a way that is pleasing to God. And so God himself never makes foolish decisions, never behaves in a foolish manner. There is no foolishness in his character and no foolishness in his activity. We, on the other hand, are filled with foolishness uh, rather than with wisdom. But wisdom is a communicable attribute, and God himself is the fountainhead and source of all wisdom. And we are called as Christians, if we lack wisdom, to do what? To pray that God in his wisdom will illuminate our thinking. He gives us his word that we might be 